The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Hi, I'm Jan Barris, the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to be doing this broadcast this afternoon with Michael Yehuda, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at the London School of Economics and Visiting Scholar at the Seeger Center for Asian Studies at the Elliott School in George Washington University. And I'm pleased to say an old friend, and so we're delighted that you're here with us, Michael. And I have just read part. I have to admit I haven't had a chance to read the whole book, but I've read part of it. Um, And I found what I read fascinating, and in some ways you sort of challenge some of the um, stated ideas or, or, or myths that everyone seems to believe about China and Japan and their relationship. But I'd like to start um, asking you about, uh, to compare sort of and contrast Japan's relationship not with China but with Germany because I've always found it fascinating that the two countries reacted so differently to the atrocities that both committed during the war. And you have a really interesting discussion of why that is. And because Many argue, although you take some issue with it, many argue that Japan's refusal to apologize for what went on during the war is quite germane to the current relationship with China, but you have a somewhat different take on that. So I'd like to hear your comments. Well, first, the differences between Germany and Japan. Um, In Germany, first of all, there was a Nazi party, and so at the end of the war, you could have a program of denazification. In addition to which, uh, we're talking really about Western Germany and um, the uh, the Germans and the French has uh, been sort of protagonists for uh, many decades before. And uh, it was their leaders who recognized that if Europe were to build itself up from the ashes of the war, they had to find ways of working together. And that was the beginnings of the iron and coal and steel agreement, out of which eventually emerged uh, what we now call the European Union, Um, which meant that economically uh, the recovery of Germany was already linked with with its neighbors. This was followed up by uh, Germany's... uh, integration into the defense establishment of the West as a whole. And although that was a bit controversial at the time, nevertheless, uh, that proceeded. So in order for Germany to both be a leading economic partner and a uh, major partner in the alliance system centered on opposing the Soviet Union, it had to have working relations with its neighbors, had to have good relations with its neighbors, Uh, The war is still not forgotten, uh, not only in Germany, but with many other neighbors. Now contrast this with Japan. Uh, When the American occupation began, the idea was to demilitarize Japan. And that was the basis for the the peace constitution. But not long after that emerged the Cold War. And uh, the United States... Uh, then uh, recognized 
that it needed Japan as a kind of a pillar uh, uh, in the Far East. Um, the, uh, shortly after this, the Korean War had broken up, and um, the, in order for Japan to become an economic pillar, it had, the occupation recognized that they had to draw on the skills of, uh, that were available in Japan. People with, had skills in running big economic organizations, people uh, who were good administrators and so on. And these people tended to be people who had served in the imperial uh, war machine, if I can call it that way, in the occupation of Manchuria and other places. And, in fact, were designated as war criminals. Some of them were designated as uh, war criminals or being held in anticipation of their being charged with war criminals, and they were released. In addition to which, there wasn't really an equivalent of the Nazi party, and the war was fought in the name of the emperor. And we now know that the emperor, uh, weakly or not, presided over a number of important the decisions that were taken regarding the war. And uh, the American occupation forces decided in advance that they uh, would keep the emperor in position, and although they would strip him of his divine authority. And the uh, alliance system that the United States built uh, in the uh, early 50s was uh, not a multilateral one, although there are indications that um, John Foster Dulles, for one, would have liked to have had one. But um, he was unsuccessful, so that the United States had a separate alliance with Japan, a separate one with what what was the Republic of China and called Taiwan, a separate one with the Philippines, a separate one with with South Korea. And, in fact... um, the, Jap- the Japanese uh, were still hoping to have economic dealings with mainland China, and so uh, they didn't really want to be part of a defense system with, with Taiwan. Uh, neither South Koreans nor the Japanese were interested in having uh, a military alliance. Uh, so, uh, in that sense, Japan had no real incentive from a political strategic point of view uh, to really bury the hatchet with its neighbors. And from an economic perspective, Japan really was uh, uh, really needed the United States. Uh, the, although some Japanese at the time thought that they would really need China as they had done during the war and earlier, nevertheless they found that the uh, economic relationship that they had with China even though it broke the American embargo, was not very significant. And um, so the main economic partner for Japan was the United States. And so, therefore, neither from uh, the economic side nor from the strategic political side was it the same kind of incentives that there were in Germany. Uh, Beyond that, uh, the... uh, the historians at that time and most of the teachers in Japan at that time were leftists. Marxism was very influential at that time. And uh, they did write up 
and quite a lot about the atrocities of the war. Um, they were also uh, unhappy with America because they felt that the advent of American-style capitalism, as they saw it, was uh, undermining what, what they hoped for was a more kind of collectivist approach within Japan. At the same time, the more right-wing in Japan also didn't like the American influence because they felt this was damaging to what they regarded as the Japanese essence. And uh, so uh, the, as the United States needed uh, the more conservative types to run Japan, it is their uh, approach that in the end prevailed. And um, there was no uh, real in incentive to do otherwise. I mean, the, um, one possibility might have been in 1965 when, under American influence, Japan and South Korea established full diplomatic relations. But um, uh, this was, but this didn't seem to satisfy either side very much. And uh, there were no real consequences to that. As far as China was concerned, um, there wasn't really pressure from the Chinese side under Mao to um, really address this issue head on. Uh, Mao took the view that uh, the, um, he had the main source for his authority stemmed from his victory in the civil war over Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. And indeed, class struggle was central to his whole approach right till his death uh, in, in the late 70s. So um, as far as he was concerned, uh, it was, in a strange way as he saw it, it was the Japanese who enabled him to come to power because they had weakened the, uh, the nationalist forces. And um, indeed, he is said to have told the Japanese prime minister in 1972 when the time for it came to establish diplomatic relations and Tanaka started apologizing and Mao stopped him. He said, no need to apologize because without you, I wouldn't, wouldn't be here. And uh, he didn't insist on reparations either. Uh, in his view, uh, the main thing was to try and separate Japan from the United States. And to that end, he argued the Japanese people were fine. It was just their governments, which was not so good. And this only changed with, with Deng Xiaoping, because people here tend to emphasize very strongly the economic dimensions of the reform. But they overlook the political side. Uh, the main political incentive uh, was to say, uh, in effect, the Cultural Revolution was a culmination of Mao and his approach, and we've had enough of class struggle and all the destructiveness of it. What we really want to emphasize is the unity of the people, and through the unity of the people, we can then go and focus on making China truly great, which requires economic uh, modernization. And that meant that Taiwan now, instead of being that awful outpost linked up to America, Taiwan now became the compatriots with whom we must establish a new united front uh, on the hoping for eventually uni unification. So uh, uh, 
So what was the historical basis for the Chinese communist victory? Uh, bearing in mind that for all nationalistically-minded Chinese, uh, there had been this century of shame and humiliation, and China's sort of rebuilding was related to overcoming all of that. Well, the worst one was Japan. And the communists of the early stage claimed that they had done it. But uh, progressively, as they have reached out to Taiwan and so on, so the nationalists have come in more into the picture. And uh, the turning point on all of this really came with the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. Because with the end of the motherland of socialism, it really removed any vestige of appealing to socialism as a basis to reach out to people. Uh, Deng's whole slogan was socialism with Chinese characteristics, whatever, whatever that could mean, but, the, but socialism was there. But after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, as the big question, and it's there to this day, how can China avoid that fate? How can they keep the Communist Party in power and not go down that road? Well, the one thing that they have emphasized over and over again is uh, what they call patriotism. It's built into the educational system from kindergartens onwards. Uh, the, uh, the number of films about the war with Japan are just churning out. I think it was calculated 200 a year. Wow. Only about Japan? Yes. Wow. About the war with Japan. Right. The, uh, comic books. Uh, you, any means of reaching to younger people, it's all there. And it's been going on nonstop since um, the beginnings of what was called the patriotic education back 20 years ago now. And, uh, and that's partly why uh, you find it so virulent that is anti-Japanese sentiments in the younger people. Uh, because that's, that's all, all they know in a way. And how does that contrast with what the younger Japanese are taught about China? Uh, well, the Japanese have had a... Well, let me go back. In the actual history of relations between China and Japan since the end of the war has been very complicated. Uh, there have been different times in which China's leaders have looked at Japan as an economic model and as the one country that can help them go to modernity. And Japanese have, that, have had that feeling as well. So there was, if you like, a golden period in relations with Japan that was in the 70s and 80s, and the Japanese felt that. Uh, and then from a Japanese perspective, things began to go wrong in the 1990s. Uh, the Chinese tested atomic bombs um, just before the coming into being of the uh, um, test ban treaty. And uh, then around that time, the Chinese also uh, fired missiles to the north and the south of Taiwan. Those to the north of of Taiwan were not too far from the most southerly Japanese islands. Mm -hmm. So, uh, up, uh, and then of course was Tiananmen itself. Un in, until Tiananmen, uh, the opinion polls in Japan showed that more than 80% of Japanese people had a positive view. 
After Tiananmen, it went down to about 50%. And then, as the uh, sense in which Japan had uh, somehow reached a, a blockage point with the financial crisis that they had, um, the, and the feeling then of continual pressure from, from China. Um, then the, uh, uh, the American reach out to China, especially with the famous uh, visit by President Clinton, where he spent 10 days in China. And unlike previous American leaders, he didn't stop in Japan, either on the way there or the way back. Made them feel that, um, uh, that maybe they were going to be abandoned, or maybe the United States was going to put more emphasis on its relations with China than, it, than it, with its traditional ally. So from that uh, point of view, uh, China began to be seen uh, as posing more and more challenges to Japan. And, and indeed, if you look at Japanese defense white papers, it's really from that time onwards they begin to feel that. And uh, they, um, uh, so that uh, although there was still in Japan a residue of enormous respect for Chinese culture and the influence it has had in Japan, that is something that belonged to the pre-modern period. And uh, this sense that the uh, Chinese are being brought up to hate them, uh, the many demonstrations that have taken place in China, which many of them have been quite violent, have uh, been noted in great detail in, in Japan and have uh, made Japanese uh, people feel, uh, well, initially they expressed concern, now they express sort of more than that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think the Japanese view is that they've become reactive and that um, the renewed emphasis on defense uh, that the current prime minister put on didn't come from him. It was the uh, previous uh, Democratic Party that really began to put all this emphasis and say we must have mobile defense, we've got to defend our southern islands and all of this. So it's a fairly widespread feeling within Japan. And, um, and the feeling in Japan is that we haven't done anything <laughs> to deserve this. And um, so as a result, um, the, um, uh, the atmosphere there now is very anti-Chinese. Uh, something like 90% of Japanese polled now disapprove of China. Yes, I just read that in China, close to 9 in 10 Chinese have negative feelings about Japan, and 8 in 10 Japanese have negative sentiments toward China. Yes. So. And, um, but there, there's, well, there's a strategic dimension to all of this as well, because it's only in the last uh, 15 years or so that the Chinese have begun not only to talk about uh, the maritime dimension of their modernization, of the fact that they are, have gone global economically and so on, but they've also begun to develop naval capabilities to, as they would see it, to, to protect their mar new maritime interests. And uh, this has resulted in... Um, uh, 
in Chinese ships of all kinds uh, pressing up against uh, Japan, uh, some of them going not only into the Japanese sort of exclusive economic zones, but even going into what are internationally recognized as territorial waters. And, uh, and this has been increasing. Uh, it's culminated, of course, in the dispute about the Jiayu or Senkaku Islands. But it long antedates that. So uh, from a, a Japanese perspective, there's a sense of this continual pressure from China who are forever increasing it. And, uh, and therefore the Japanese see themselves as reacting to it. Uh, they find that the accusation that they have been provocative uh, astounding. I mean, why should the nationalization of islands change anything? I mean, they were regarded as part of Japanese sovereignty before, and from a legal point of view, nothing had changed. So why is that provocative? It's because the Chinese choose to find it provocative. Uh, after all, they would have found it much more provocative if the former governor of Tokyo had bought it and had decided to put people on the islands and and so on. So, uh, well, that's what we all thought. I guess it would have been helpful for everyone all the way around if maybe the Japanese had spoken to the Chinese about that and said... Well, they did. Before, the, but yes. not before... Oh, they did. Yes. That's, I thought that they had no, there not. Was a meeting was a of, there was a meeting of the APEC people in which uh, the previous Prime Minister, Prime Minister Noda, mm -hmm. told Hu Jintao, we're going to do this. Oh, really? I uh, because... Uh, we Otherwise, it'll be worse. Otherwise, we want to stop. Right, we want to stop the, that terrible guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hu Jintao said, "Well, in our view, we don't think you should do this." Mm. And so, but Noda nevertheless what went ahead it? and did it. Right. So, whether it was uh, Hu Jintao feeling that, um, that that Noda had run roughshod over his views or what have you. But the nationalization in itself really changed nothing. From the Japanese perspective? Not even from the Chinese perspective. I mean, that they choose to see it as such. But it didn't change one iota. Uh, Japanese claims to administer the island. Uh, it didn't change one iota Chinese Japanese claims to sovereignty. And um, the Japanese didn't change their policies. They didn't say, oh, well, now we've nationalized it, we're going to do things with it. Right, right. So um, in this sense, it seems uh, that um, what, uh, what people are, have claimed is happening more generally in, in, the, in the neighborhood, the Chinese are pushing the envelope. Well, it's fascinating. I had a whole lot more questions. Um, I encourage people to look at your book, Sino-Japanese Relations After the Cold War, Two Tigers Sharing a Mountain by Michael Yehuda, and it's got a fabulous picture on the cover <laughs> of these you. two tigers. So thank, thank you. you very much, Michael. We appreciate you being here, and I'm sorry we don't have more time. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it.